Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald. Louis Friedberg is awake. Tuesday is Election Day in California, and if you're like some flummoxed Democrats I know, you may be standing around inside your polling booth, wringing your hands, praying to your God, when at 7.59 p.m., a poll worker says, it's closing time and you will just have to make up your mind. But we're not going to be talking about the presidential primary today, although let me remind you that EdSource this week did a fine job outlining the positions on education from preschool to higher ed for all of the major Democratic candidates. I'll include the link on our podcast page. But this week, we'll talk about the other big issue on the ballot, the $15 billion construction bond, Proposition 13. There's been a lot of confusion about what the proposition actually is and what it will do. My guess is that some of the misinformation is intentional in an effort to defeat it. We'll also talk about teacher housing. Four school districts will be asking their voters to approve measures to make housing for their teachers and other school employees more affordable. I'll talk to EdSource reporter Diana Lambert about what the districts are doing, and I'll play an interview I had with Chris Funk, superintendent of Eastside Union High School District in San Jose, which is proposing to build 100 apartments on district property with an enviable view of the East Foothills. But first, let's take one last look at Prop 13, the construction bond. Governor Newsom and the legislature placed it on the ballot to help pay for the cost of new constructions and renovation for K-12 and higher ed. That breaks down to $6 billion, $2 billion each for community colleges, CSU, and UC for their projects, and $9 billion for K-12 districts in matching state money. The bulk of the K-12 money will go towards school renovation and repairs. Most of the rest will go to new construction with charter schools and career tech facilities also getting a piece. And $150 million will be set aside to make drinking water safe in schools contaminated with lead in school water. To answer questions about the bond, I asked Jeff Vincent to make a return visit to the podcast. Jeff is director of the Center for Cities and Schools at UC Berkeley. He also co-authored research on school construction that influenced legislators when they set some of the priorities for distributing the state money in the proposed bond. Welcome back, Jeff. Good to be here. This Prop 13 has no relationship with Prop 13 in 1978 that set limits on property taxes. It's, It's really purely the luck of the draw in assigning numbers. But the bigger question that seems to be confusing some people is, will this Prop 13 raise people's property taxes? And the simple answer is no. State bond repayment comes out of the general fund, period. However, in order to access those state bond funds for a local district, they need to pass local bonds to raise their share of the match because it's a, it's a funding match program. So if your district and your community decides to access those funds, they would need to pass a local bond, which would then go on the property taxes. So they have to prove their own local bond. That's their decision before they can get the matching money. But yeah, this initiative won't raise it. Correct. One way to measure the need for additional state building assistance is to look at what school districts themselves are proposing for the ballot on Tuesday. Michael Coleman, who tracks ballot measures for the website CaliforniaCityFinance.com, tells me there will be 122 school facility bonds on the ballot for approval worth $17.4 billion in construction. 
They'll range from $1.7 billion by Waukema Joint Union School District in Tulare County to $900 million that Morgan Hill Unified is seeking. So some of the bonds will probably qualify for the matching state money if the state bond passes. So, Jeff, voters passed the last bond four years ago. Why do legislators and the governor say that more money is needed now? Well, I think there's a lot of demand out there to improve school facilities across the state. You know, we have an aging school infrastructure. You know, probably half of our schools are at least 50 years old. And so, you know, they need to adapt to new technologies. They need to, you know, catch up on deferred maintenance, whether it's leaky roofs or adding plugs in rooms and everything in between. So there's a lot of need out there. We have been trying to understand that need to to understand what the conditions and qualities of school facilities across the state of California are. Because we see a lot of anecdotal evidence that there's a lot of deficiencies, a lot of rundown buildings, and in particular, a lot of portable buildings that students are in. And portable buildings tend to not last as long you know, have health problems and other issues that come up with them. And so what we have done is looked at the spending by local school districts on facility maintenance and operations and on their capital spending. And and we compared that against kind of industry standards for investment benchmarks. And what we found was actually pretty striking is that, you know, many districts simply can't meet these benchmarks, or at least they're not doing it. 80% of districts in recent years haven't met minimum maintenance and operations benchmarks, and about 60% haven't done so in terms of their their capital investment. And what that tells me is that we've got a chronic underinvestment going on, and then we've got accumulating deferred maintenance. So a lot of these needs are in low-income communities, at least that's what your study found. And remind us how this bond will distribute money differently and who will get the priorities and how it will be different from in the past. So this proposition actually puts into place a number of changes to the state's program in terms of investing in school facilities. And I think they're interesting to note, and one of which is that there's a new priority system for projects, whereas the old system was more or less a first come, first serve. If you bring a project first before I do, you're in line before me. But this one actually prioritizes types of projects, which I think is an interesting approach. For example, health and safety projects get first priority. And then second priority goes to uh, lower wealth districts. And then third priority goes to other projects. And so those priorities, I think that system is probably going to have an effect on kind of who gets money and what types of districts get money. I think we can agree that a lot of that makes sense, but I can see a number of well-off communities saying, well, okay, but will I be able to get my share? I don't think there will be a problem with higher wealth communities getting their quote unquote share out of this proposition in this bond money. What we've seen, the evidence has been over the last 20 years that lower wealth districts really seem to be disadvantaged in getting state funds. And what the proposition attempts to do is to enable those districts to get some priority access to funds. And I I think that's smart public policy. Why should the state issue bonds instead of simply paying as you go through the state's general funds, as some are suggesting? Well, this is a great question. You know, traditionally, this is the way California has funded infrastructure and school facilities are infrastructure, just like you rarely pay cash for your house. You finance it. Right. And so, you know, I've long wondered whether the state should move 
to a kind of pay-as-you-go model. And I've looked at the way in which other states do this. And California is actually unique in funding this sector almost entirely through bonds. Most states have a legislative appropriation each year, or they come. It comes from a variety of sources, you know. And I, I would love to see somebody kind of model the pros and cons over time of a pay-as-you-go model versus a bond model. And probably what we would see is that some combo of those might save us a little dollars. But I haven't looked at the data. The LAO estimates that there's a fifteen billion dollar bond and interest over, I think it's 40 years, will be $11 billion. And it's roughly $750 million a year in interest and principal payments over time. And that's sort of in that range that other bonds have been, right, Jeff? That's my understanding, yeah. I mean, even when I look at my own mortgage on my house, I mean, those are the numbers we're talking about. You kind of don't want to look at that number, really. (laughs) So there's another change that people have been asking about is, what's the change for developer fees and what impact will that have? Developer fees have traditionally been a fee that a developer who's building units pays to a school district. So the school district can accommodate the projected new students that would live in those units. So what this proposition does is reduces the amount of developer fees for multifamily units in particular. So there's a 20% cut to developer fees for multifamily units across the board. And then there's a 100% cut to developer fees for multifamily units that are very close, I think within a half mile of transit. So clearly the governor or somebody wanted to kind of connect the dots here on some housing goals with some school facility issues, and they've put this in here. And so, but what I think we'll see is that this will affect some districts more than others. So developer fees are a small but important piece of the revenue pie for school districts, particularly with building new schools, right? But that's going to vary by district to district, depending on how much growth and development they have going on. But I think what we'll see with this change and reduction in developer fees is it will probably impact urban districts the most. Why? Because they're the places where there tends to be more multifamily unit development going on. And they're also the places that tend to have more transit. Thus, there would be more places near transit. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming by again. And thanks for your research, which has helped, I think, legislators in deciding how to shape this bond. And we'll see what happens on Tuesday. Thanks for having me, John. That was Jeff Vincent, Director of Public Infrastructure Initiatives at the Center for Cities and Schools at UC Berkeley. So let's turn now to teacher housing. It's become increasingly difficult to attract and keep teachers in high-cost areas like the Bay Area and L.A. and coastal Southern California, where where rents can eat up most of new teachers' paychecks or force them to drive an hour or two in commute traffic from a place they possibly can afford. So some districts are building apartments at below market price as a strategy. Diana Lambert, our reporter who covers the teacher's beat, is on the line with us. Great to have you today, Diana. Thanks for having me. So you wrote about four districts that will ask voters to approve funding for teacher and staff housing. But the one that jumped out to me is Patterson Joint Unified School District in rural Stanislaus County. That's not your typical high-cost urban district. What's the need there? Well, John, a lot of residents of the Bay Area have been moving 
to Patterson for lower prices on housing. And they are pushing up the housing prices and there's a great shortage of housing. So teachers are commuting 40 miles away to get to work every day to be able to afford to live in a decent apartment. So how far below market can districts afford to build for teachers to make it worth their while? Well, I'm not clear on how far below market they can afford to build, but they're all planning 70% below market rents for their teachers. They think that will allow teachers to save up for down payments for homes or to stay in the community. So tell us about the other three. What's what's their need and how many are they building and how many are they building in Patterson? Almost all of these school districts are looking at 100 apartments for their teachers. And I think a lot of them are hoping to do more in the future, but this is a start. What are the other ones? Soledad Unified in Monterey County. We have Eastside Union School District in Santa Clara County. And we have Chula Vista Elementary School in San Diego County. Yeah, tell me a little bit about each. Well, Chula Vista is a really interesting situation because they have a big growth spurt in San Diego County. They're building houses as quickly as they can, but there aren't enough and the prices are going up steadily. So a lot of the employees commute in from Tijuana. Wow, that's interesting. Where where rents are a lot cheaper or from other communities nearby. Yeah, I'll talk about Eastside Union. I did an interview with Chris Funk. So tell us about Soledad. Well, Soledad has the same situation and that they're having rising costs and a shortage of homes. So they feel in order to retain and attract teachers, they need to build teacher housing. Do teachers like the housing once they're in? Oh, yes. Uh, Once they're in, teachers love the the idea of teacher housing. I just spoke to a teacher in Patterson who is getting ready to move into one of two townhomes they already purchased, and they're using a sort of a pilot. And she's very excited about it in the resident that was in the apartment before her has saved up enough money now to get a down payment on a home because the district puts $500 a month toward down payment assistance. Oh, down payment as well. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And they're going to do that with a new project as well. So what's the advantage for a district to use bonds to to build teacher housing? The advantage is they don't have to use any of their own funds, that this is taxpayer paid, and they can ultimately generate revenue for their coffers. So what about November? This is March, on the March ballot, and then we have another vote coming in November. Have you heard of other districts interested in doing the same thing? I have. I don't have names, but I understand from some of the people who deal with the bonds that there are five or six districts considering putting a general obligation bond on the ballot in November. I've been speaking with Diana Lambert, EdSource reporter who covers the teacher beat. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks for covering this issue. It's really interesting, Diana. Thank you. appreciate it. So to explore one proposal, I visited Eastside Union High School District in San Jose and took a ride with Superintendent Chris Funk to a four-acre site on an expansive district office property where the district wants to locate 100 apartments. Right now, it's just a bus depot with a chain-link fence and cracks in the concrete. I asked him why he planned to do the project. We are putting this ballot, and it's actually a $60 million initiative on the ballot because attracting and retaining qualified employees is is critical and when we talk about a hundred thousand teacher shortage in california in the next five to ten years and you factor in the cost of living here in silicon valley our average employees cannot afford to live in the area that they work and we want them to be able to uh, live in the area that they work are you finding that you're losing teachers who can't afford either to live in san jose or do a lengthy commute that is our challenge if a teacher stays with us after seven years they tend to stay 
because uh, our upper salary is competitive and then we have a very attractive benefits package for our employees. It's the teachers that come here uh, in their first five to six years where it's either burnout because teaching can be an isolated profession or because they are commuting hours a day to and from work that they're just not finding that balance of quality of life. So what do they make on average now and what do they have to pay in rent and how might that change? The starting salary for a teacher is 61000 The starting salary for a classified uh, employee is about 44000 And so there's only two requirements that we're going to have and that is your employee of the district and that you or your significant other does not own property. So you could be a first, second year employee, but you could be a 10 year employee and not own and you'd be able to qualify and stay in the housing for up to seven years. So how many hundreds of dollars per month might you be getting below market value if this goes through? Uh, hopefully we're gonna shoot between three to $450 per month below market value. And why is it that the district can do it and do it cheaper than market? The reason why we can do it cheaper than market is because one, we own the property, and two, because this is a bond and taxpayers are paying for the building of the housing, then the net revenue that comes in actually goes into our general fund. And because we don't have to pay the loan back and we own the land, therefore we can set the prices at the range we want. The net revenue, so after we pay the maintenance and upkeep, after we pay the property manager to run, the net revenue in the first year will just be over a million dollars. And in about seven years, it jumps to uh, as high as $3 million. So we're excited about having revenue that we generate and that we get to keep locally. Is teacher's reaction, that's great, Chris, but why don't you just take that revenue and just lower the rent even further? Well, the unique thing about this is our board will be able to set the criteria of how we use the revenue. And at this point in time, because we are talking about a deficit structure in our budget and we're talking about potential layoffs, having revenue in the general fund is a benefit. Now, once our deficit is straightened out, our, uh, our structure is straightened out, then the board can come back and say, hey, why not apply that revenue and lower the rent? Or... What I'm also thinking about doing in the future is creating a separate account that will support uh, employees that after their seven years, we can help them with down payments. Chris, how much will that $60 million bond cost taxpayers on a yearly basis? So looking at those numbers, it would be about $2.72 per 100000 assessed value. And when you look at the parcels in East Side, the average homeowner's assessed value, not what it's worth if they sold it, but the assessed value falls between four and $700,000. So we're talking about 18 to $20 a year to support this employee housing project. So it won't solve your problem of your teacher shortage and turnover, but 100 is not an insignificant number. I agree. It won't solve the problem, but this could be just phase one. We'll, we'll have to see. We've been talking to Chris Funk, superintendent of Eastside Union High School District in San Jose. Thanks very much. A couple years from now, we'll come back and see what those buildings look like if voters agree. Look forward to it. It's going to be an exciting time. Before we go, I want to draw your attention to a compelling series running this week on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, and a partner of EdSource. It's an in-depth look at 
the Orange County School of the Arts. As arts reporter Carla Javier noted, the school is one of the state's most popular and prestigious charter schools. But OSHA, as the school is called, also has a long track record of admissions policies and funding practices that are exclusionary or they violate the state charter school law. Let's listen to a piece of her first story. OSHA is popular because it isn't your average school. The academics here are strong. The school brags that over 80% of its graduates go to four-year colleges, places like USC, NYU, and Stanford. But the main reason people come is for the arts. OSHA offers high-level training in everything from acting and musical theater to culinary arts and digital media. In production and design, students work on building sets. In a dance studio, kids work on their tap routine. And in a choir room, sopranos and altos work on their solfege. The school's charter is now in jeopardy. To find out more about the controversy, check out Carla's articles and radio stories. I'll include the links on our podcast page at edsource.org. Well, that's it for this week. Louis Friedberg will be back next week. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ed Source has a Q&A on Prop 13 and commentaries for and against on our website. Not that you, all people, and you too, Kobe, need a reminder, but don't forget to vote on Tuesday. I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.